Thanks, everyone. I appreciate that. That's great. Sorry? No, it's all good. Thank you. Yeah, I'll organise the furniture. I'll just take over now. So I'll just become the pastor of the church for the next however long. How long have I got? When do I need to be done by, mate? <laughs> when do the children's church people expect us to be done? 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock? Wow. That's a lot of time. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. Lovely uh, to be here. I uh, was very thrilled and privileged to be able to spend time with uh, a bunch of people who shoulder some weight and, uh, and carry the life of the church in their hearts uh, on Friday night and Saturday morning. And it's always just great, you know, wherever I get to travel uh, around the world, you realise that our love for Jesus is such a common bonding point uh, and what we can learn from one another and what we can discover together. And so it is a great pleasure to be with you today. Uh, it's a great privilege to always be able to speak uh, to the people of God in a setting like this in God's house. And so I don't take it lightly. Um, this morning, I want us just to explore together some thoughts. Uh, you know, I know as a preacher that you're having a conversation with me in your head. Uh, I might be the one talking, but you're actually talking back to me in your head as you process what I'm saying, and that's uh, right and appropriate. Um, and so I want you to have a conversation in your head with me this morning about uh, the thought that a new commandment I give to you, uh, that uh, you're to love one another as I have loved you, that you're to love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so, um, you know, there are times where I channel surf on television, I get bored with what I'm watching, and uh, occasionally I've bumped into this show called The Biggest Loser, and, um, and, and I, am, uh, I, I stand in awe of the people that go on that program. Um, they, they stand on a scale that shows a number that is far too big, and then they're standing on there having taken off too many clothes in front of an international audience um, because they actually want to go somewhere different to where they are. They're prepared to be courageous enough to actually put themselves in a position where there are lots of people uh, like on Gogglebox watching and, and having all these reactions that they don't actually get to see, but, um, but they're there because they want to get to a place that's different to where they are. They want to lose something which is holding them back so they can step into the fullness of life uh, that is waiting for them if they can get their weight down. And so there are times in our Christian life where we need to do the same thing, where we need to be able to just stand on the scales and, and look at what's there, maybe not be all that impressed by what's there, but we do it because we want to go somewhere that we're currently not uh, in. And so, uh, so my thought this morning is, as you stand on the scales and as you look at the way that you love other people, would others looking on who don't know Jesus recognise you as a disciple of Christ? Would they actually call you a disciple of Jesus. Often in our culture, people are known as disciples of Jesus because of what we oppose rather than what we give. We're known as disciples of Jesus at the minute because of our opposition to the same-sex marriage survey. And I don't want to get into that uh, today at all. Um, just to make the, set the record straight, um, I do have an opinion which I'm not very public about because I think this is a conversation. It's not a telling for the purpose of agreements position. And so if you want to know what my personal position is, you can come and ask me at the end of the meeting and I'll have a conversation with you and I'll be interested to know what your opinion is as well and why you believe that. But when we disagree, if we do disagree, that we still find a way of loving one another. Yeah. And unfortunately, when I look at the way that we engage with our culture, our culture doesn't feel the love of God coming out of us as much as they feel us taking moral positions. Yeah. And so I just need you to reflect on that with me this morning in the light of a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, 
by your love for one another. And so when they look into your family, when they look into your relationships with your workmates, with those you attend school or university with, are they actually able to say, there's something amazing about the way that you love people that leads me to think there must be something different about you? Because that's what Jesus anticipated. He anticipated that we would treat this as a commandment, not a conversation, not a dialogue, not a democratic opinion where I have a vote. He actually expects us to learn how to love one another on the basis of how much he loves us. He actually expects us to have experience and encounters with his love because that's what Ephesians 3 verse 19 says, to know the love of Christ. The Greek word there, to know, means to know by experience and encounter. So to know the love of Christ by experience and encounter which surpasses what you know in your head, knowledge, so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. And so, so the Lord actually wants to give you experiences and encounters with his love because when you experience and encounter his love, you've now got something of him to give away to others. And that's what he anticipated would be the center of our spirituality. That's a new commandment. It's the new commandment for New Testament living. And so, so in this space, I, I feel like in our nation at the minute, the Lord is actually creating an opportunity for his people to explore how we're stepping into this commandment that he gave to us. Because he actually wants to reach our nation with his love. I believe that, you know, that we can sort of hunker down and think the darkness is getting greater, but the light always dispels the darkness. And so in any generation, we've got to figure out what is the light that God wants to shine into this generation. Billy Graham did it in his own way, and uh, and then Wigglesworth did it in his way, and we go back, John Wesley did it in his way, and Martin Luther did it in his way, and so every generation has light that shine into it in the way that God wants to reach that generation. And so what if in this generation here in Australia, God is actually wanting to shine the light of who he is through love? What if it was that he was actually going to bring us back to this space of love and show the world how wonderful he is by the way that we love the way that we love one another, the way we love people around us. And so, um, so if there's any validity in that, uh, stay with me. If there's not, then by all means go to social media and enjoy yourselves uh, for the next hour while I paddle on. Um, and so, uh, so in this space, if this is, the, if this is the, what God is wanting to do, then you know, what the biggest loser people do is that they change what they've been doing to get to another place. They change their diet, they start to exercise, they, they do something different. And so, so what is the diet that we have potentially been feasting on that stops us from going into this space? Well, there's a number of things that I could talk about. I've talked about some of them with uh, the leaders over the last, uh, you know, sort of yesterday and Friday night. This morning I want to explore this thought with you uh, and invite you to consider it with me. Um, it would seem to me that we have all learnt to give and receive this idea of having right standing with one another on the basis of performance. And so, so we're all interested in having right standing with other people and we, we let other people know whether they've got right standing with us. We can make it very clear to people whether they have right standing with us by our facial expressions, by the tone of our voice, by the way that we use our body language. And we find this is happening all the time. It, it happens uh, when we're driving on the road. We, we have all sorts of ways of letting people know whether they have right standing with us um, by the way that we express ourselves. And, 
Then it also happens in when we're talking to people on the telephone in India and we're trying to get them to solve a problem with our telephone uh, issues and they can't do it and so we, our voice can rise, our language can change. We, we let people know you don't have right standing with me right now. Um, we were, Lynn and I recently came back from Brisbane and uh, we had to fly up there very unexpectedly with two days notice and so they charged us $1,650 each to fly to and from Brisbane. We could have got to Europe uh, with that and, uh, and that wasn't business class, that was just cattle class. And, uh, and, so, um, and then when we got back here, we sat on the tarmac for an hour waiting for a gate to open um, and I, I have to admit, there's the, the struggle to let the steward know that they weren't really in right standing with me right at that moment. <laughs> you know, it was like, I actually had an opinion that this, this is, you're, you, you don't, you're not in right standing right now. And, uh, and so, so there's this space of right standing on the basis of performance. Uh, we do this with our spouses all the time. If you squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom, then you have right standing. If you squeeze it from the middle, you don't. Uh, if you leave the toilet seat up, you have right standing. If you leave it down, no, it's actually the other way around, isn't it? If you, if you leave the toilet seat down, you have right standing. If you leave it up, you don't have right standing. Um, it, it, happens, it happens at work all the time, and depending on, you know, who the boss is and what sort of a bad hair day they're having, you know, you, they, they let you know that you don't have right standing, and so you walk away feeling diminished, you walk away feeling marginalised, you walk away feeling less than what you would hope to. And yet we also do this to one another as well. And so there's this whole place of where we give a sense of right standing and receive a sense of right standing on the basis of performance. And so we communicate to our culture in general as the church that they don't have right standing um, because they're not following the morals and ethics that we hold dear. But why would they want to follow them when they don't know the one that we are wanting to please? Why, why would we hold them to that standard when they don't actually know the one who can empower them to live that way? The only reason why I can live, you know, the way that I live is because the Holy Spirit empowers me through the Word of God to actually step into the spaces where I honour Him. But until I knew Him, you know, I was as alcoholic as the next person and, you know, all sorts of things. And, and so it's very easy for us to use this whole performance framework to determine right standing. And then it happens inside of churches as well, unfortunately. You know, I mean, uh, the people leave churches because they, they say, I'm not in right standing with you anymore because you're not worshipping the way I want to or you're not providing the children's ministry that I want to, you know, I need you to. And, and pastors can be equally abusive with their congregations and put their, spiritually abuse their congregations and say, well, you're not in right standing with us because you're not behaving in this sort of way. And... And so, so there's this whole sort of space in which we live, which I would want to suggest to you is actually stopping you from loving well. We're standing on the scales, we're looking at the number and we don't like the number, but we make it a point of reference so that we can go somewhere that we want to go. And so, so the question that then comes about for me anyway is how, how have we got into this place? How... How have we got into this place where we've learnt how to uh, treat one another on the basis of right standing? Um, so my very quick thought for you this morning is that uh, every single one of us want to belong, every single one of us want to be significant and every single one of us want to be secure. 
from the day that you came into your family of origin, from the day that you started going to school, from the day that you started playing sport or learning how to dance or how to paint, from the day that you joined a gang before you came to faith, from the day that you have decided that you're going for me, I was a Marxist student politician, you might have been a goth, I don't know, you know, a bikey gang, whatever, wherever, where all of those moments we're trying to figure out how do I belong with these people, how am I significant, how am I secure? We even do it when we start attending a new church and, uh, and certainly, you know, when I came into a Pentecostal church, I was raised in the Catholic tradition, I was an altar boy and I remember the first time coming into a Pentecostal church where I actually got born again and thought I'd walked onto the set of a Blues Brothers movie and... Uh, <laughs> You know, this is what, 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 you know, how do I belong? How am I significant? How am I secure? That was a very different experience to being a Catholic altar boy. Um, and so, so we're trying to figure it out um, because we want to belong, we want to be significant and we want to be secure. God's actually made you that way. He put you together that way and he wants to meet those needs, but that's another message out there which I, I'm not going to go into this morning. And so, so if that's the case, how do you actually figure out whether you belong? How do you figure out whether you're significant? How do you figure out whether you're secure? Well, basically, we ask this question, what is right and required for acceptance? In all of those different settings that I unpacked, we figure out what is right and required for acceptance. And the dilemma with that question is that we always end up with a performance answer. It's always my behaviour that's right and required for acceptance. And so, so we've learnt this whole thing of being in right standing with one another uh, through this process of trying to belong to be significant and secure because we're answering this question, what's right and required for acceptance? And so if I get it right, I'm in right standing with you. If I get it wrong, I'm not in right standing with you. And we, we're so used to this in our culture that we just give ourselves permission to live like this. But the thing is that we live in a countercultural kingdom. We're actually citizens of the kingdom of God, which is completely countercultural to this way of thinking. Yeah. And so, so now, you know, we're on the scale, we're looking at it. What have I got to change to actually become the person that God wants me to be? Well, I need to take a, a, a good hard look at how do I begin to reshape this whole idea of giving right standing to people on the basis of their performance or on the basis of their behaviour. And so it's a journey uh, that we're all on because we're trying to uh, assess our relationships with people on the basis of what's right and wrong. Inside of this space, uh, we tend to transfer this sort of thinking in, into our relationship with God as well. We, we tend to think that we have right standing with God if we behave right and we have wrong standing with God if we behave wrong. Um, I know this to be true because you know, I've been a pastor for 32 years I also know it to be true because they've done research recently in America where they asked self-confessed born-again Christians, how do you measure your spiritual maturity? 81% of those people answered that question by saying how well they follow the rules. And so they're trying to be in right standing with God on the basis of how they follow the rules. And they think if they don't follow the rules, well, they will be in wrong standing with God. And so this is because our culture lives this way. This is how our culture loves. Our culture loves through a decision about whether something is right or wrong and we have right standing or we don't have right standing. And it, it's, in, it's, it's come all the way into every part of our being, even in our relationship with God. And so, uh, so this whole idea that, you know, you may sit here this morning and think that 
your relationship with God is based on how well you follow the rules as well. It's about a right standing. I have right standing with God because I'm getting the rules right. And if I don't get the rules right, then I have to do something to get back into right standing with Him. And so if I do something that I know is not right, then maybe I need to read my Bible more or pray more or double tithe and and that will actually get me back into right standing with God because I'll impress Him. But when we live a relationship with God like that, it's actually not what the Bible says. The Bible says something very different. And so let's make the meeting legal and open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 28. Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. Paul writes, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so the law meaning the Old Testament law, the Deuteronomy and Leviticus, is all about getting right standing with God on the basis of behaviour. The Old Testament was a relationship with God based on behaviour because God was actually wanting to show mankind that right standing with God can never be attained on the basis of behaviour, it's always attained on the basis of faith. And so here Paul is saying, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith. The word justified means to have right standing. So we maintain that right standing with God is on the basis of faith. It's not on the basis of the law. It's not on the basis of following rules and regulations. And the whole book of Galatians is, is written straight into this topic. A lot of book of Romans is written into this topic as well. And so... So we maintain that somebody has right standing with God because of faith, not because of the law or behaviour or getting things wrong, uh, getting things right or wrong. And so if we just read some verses before this, so Romans chapter 3, verse 21, uh, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So righteousness, right standing with God, is achieved through faith in Jesus. It's not our behaviour. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And then the verse that we're all very familiar with, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so, so we're, we're justified, we have righteousness, we have right standing with God because it's a gift from God and it's something that He has done that we have agreed with. And so our right standing is on the basis of our agreement with what Jesus has done, it's called faith. And yet we struggle to live in this world where my relationship with God is actually not connected to my behaviour but it's connected to my belief. The Old Testament was all about behaviour management. The New Testament is all about belief management. If you read Ephesians, Philippians, Philippians, Colossians, Romans, all these, the first half of these books in general, although Romans goes a little bit further than halfway, but the first half is Paul is saying, this is what we believe. And then the second half is because now we believe this, this is how we're going to behave. Because behaviour is always the echo of belief. So when you get angry, I know it's a very rare thing for you too and it was probably a number of years ago, but maybe if you cast your mind back to that last time that that happened and think about it, when you get angry, you're not getting angry in a vacuum. You're getting angry because you believe something is happening that you need to stop. You believe that somebody is saying that you're wrong. You believe that somebody is threatening you. 
And so you're believing something and that belief motivates the behaviour of anger. And it's the same with all of your behaviour. You behave because you believe. Your behaviour is connected to your belief. And so the 12 Steps program, helping people get off drugs and alcohol and addiction to pornography or gambling, whatever it is, the 12-step program is all built around the idea that change what you believe and it will change how you behave. If you just try and change behaviour, then it ultimately will come unstuck because the belief hasn't changed. And this is one of the reasons why many Christians get so frustrated and why they actually stop trying to learn how to walk with God because they try, they're taught by people like me um, that if you, this is how you're meant to behave but we don't take enough time to actually focus on what are you believing? What, what are you actually believing? Yeah. You know, we have the seven principles of a great marriage, so, you know, do these things, and I want you to have a great marriage. Obviously, I've got one, and I love it. Um, I'm eating the fruit of it now. I'm 61. I've been married for, since 1979, and however many there is, that is 38, I think. Um, I've got three beautiful children. I've got nine great-grandchildren, and I'm eating the fruit of a wonderful marriage. I, I want everybody to have a great marriage, but what I've discovered, because I blew my marriage up after three years, is that we've got a great marriage because we change what we believe, which changes our behaviour. And so Lynn and I have learned how to manage our beliefs so that our behaviour towards one another changes. And one of the areas where we've had to manage our belief is are we going to give one another right standing on the basis of our performance... Or are we going to give one another right standing on the basis that we are both accepted by God and I need to love you like Jesus loves me? By this all men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Love one another as I have loved you. And so your ability to love other people is deeply tied to how much you know God loves you. Love one another as I have loved you. If you don't understand through revelation and experience with God how deeply he loves us, you won't love other people very well. And so the way that God loves us is, is here is that we have right standing because of the work of Jesus. I'm totally accepted. And so, so then, you know, the question becomes, how, how do I actually live this out with other people? How does this progress? How do I become this sort of person? And so the book of Romans is a fascinating book. It, you know, uh, you actually, once you've got a few keys, you begin to unlock what Paul's actually on about. And so, uh, so Romans chapter 3, he's wanting to bring us to this point that we, it's faith in Jesus that gives us right standing with God, not our behaviour, which ultimately is so countercultural. it's so difficult for us to believe that because we're so used to right standing being on the basis of our behaviour. And so then he illustrates this point in chapter 4 with uh, Abraham. He says, let me show you how this worked before the law came in. Abraham had right standing with God because of his faith. His faith imputed righteousness to him. And so, so Paul is illustrating his point. When we read the Bible, we've got, we've somehow we've got to read it without all the verses and chapters in it because it stops us from actually going on the journey of what the author is trying to explain to us. And so, so chapter 4 is Paul telling a story, like all great preachers should do. Here's a, here's a theological point, now I'm going to tell you a story. Here's a theological point, now I'm going to tell you a story. And so Paul is making a theological point and then he tells a story about Abraham to illustrate his point. And then we come to chapter 5 and chapter 6. And in chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul actually gives us five results of being justified by having right standing with God through faith. And so uh, from Romans uh, chapter 
5, verses 1 through to 5, the result of justification here that he is exploring is peace with God. So one of the results of you having right standing with God is that you have peace with God. And then the second result is that we are reconciled to God. It's in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. And then the next outcome is that we've received the gift of righteousness, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Then the fourth result of justification is that we can walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 7. And then the final one, before he goes into chapter 7, where he takes another U-turn and goes off on a different thought, is that we are adopted into his family, Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 23. And so Paul is, is building this case in the book of Romans um, and he begins at the point of, I have right standing with God because of faith in Jesus, not because of the law. And then there are five things, that, well, five benefits that we have because of our justification, because we have right standing with God. And so this morning, I was thinking originally that I might cover two, I may only get to one, so let me say I'll get to one, and if we get to two, that's a bonus. So the first one I want to look at is in verses one to five, peace with God. And so Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, when you read the therefore in the Bible, you've got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And, uh, and it's because, and, and with, with Paul, you find that he's always, when he puts a therefore in, he's always referring back to something else that, that he's been saying. So he's just wanting to remind us that he's been talking about justification by faith. He's wanting to remind us that in the preceding dialogue, he's been talking about justification by faith, just in case we've forgotten because it gets long-winded like a preacher, and so preachers have to go back and remind you of the point that they made 10 minutes earlier. And so, so he's, he's saying, so therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, uh, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so, so Paul is saying the first result of justification is that we have peace with God. He is no longer relating to us on the basis of our behaviour. He is no longer saying we have right standing with God on the basis of our behaviour. We always have right standing with Him because He's forgiven us of all of our trespasses and all of our transgressions. We always have right standing with God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All your sins have been forgiven. And so with that right standing with God, we then have to figure out, well, what does it mean when I actually sin? What does it mean when I make mistakes? But what, how, how does that affect my relationship with God? Because for many of us, when we screw it up, when we stuff it up, when we know we've made a mistake, we think it affects our right standing with God. We somehow think that he's now going to be distant or he's going to punish us because we've been raised in this culture where right standing is connected to performance. But, but Paul is making it very clear that I have peace with God all the time. God is at peace with me because Jesus was punished for all of my sin. And so if I think that I have to do something more when I sin to get God happy again, then I'm saying the work of the cross was not good enough. The whole price for all of my sin was paid by Jesus on the cross. This is the wonder of the cross. 
And so, but this doesn't give me the right to sin even more. What it does is it opens the door to my freedom. Because when I stuff it up, when I screw it up, when I make a mistake, I'm doing it because I'm believing something that is causing me to behave in a way that doesn't honor God. And so now the Holy Spirit, He's not wanting to manage my behavior, He's actually wanting to help me change my belief. And so, so what's happening in life is that when you stuff it up, when you, you know, look at pornography, when you tell a lie, when you get drunk, when you drive somebody off the road in anger, you know, whatever it is that you might do, the Holy Spirit's there saying, that wasn't really great, but I want to help you understand the belief that led you to do that so that when I change the belief, you won't do that again. He doesn't want to punish you for the poor performance because he punished Jesus for your poor performance. Jesus took the whole penalty for all of your bad behavior upon him and the whole world. And so, so we've got to learn how to walk with God because what happens is that people try and change their behavior without changing the belief. And, and they think that God is sin conscious, but he's not. He's, he's conscious of your righteousness and wanting to call you up into your righteousness, not call you out to punish you. And so he, he wants to work with your belief systems because you're doing that stuff because you're believing something that's put you in a prison. And he came to set the captives free. So I'm, I, please hear me well. I'm in no way condoning your sin today. I am not condoning it. Let me illustrate it this way. I worked with the worst cases of child abuse as a social worker in New South Wales when I first graduated from university. I don't know why they employed me because I didn't have any kids and I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. However, that being the case, I worked in a residential facility where families came and lived for two weeks and there was a multidisciplinary team of psychologists and people who ran the preschool and social workers and doctors and, and we were there to assess over a two-week period whether the children, we could return the child to the family and the child or the children would be safe. And if we didn't think that was the case, then we would go to the courts and have the children removed and put them into foster care. And so, so in that space, I got to meet some very dysfunctional families. And in that space, I met some families where the mother was a third or fourth generation welfare recipient. She'd grown up in a family culture where no one had ever had a job for three or four generations and that they just lived off welfare. And growing up in that sort of environment, they didn't have a great education. They didn't have great emotional capacity when under stress. They didn't have the capacity to think their way through things. And so they have a colicky child who's screaming every night, night in, night out, they're getting tired. And eventually they snap and they throw the child against the wall in a fit of, of despair. What I learned in that situation is that everything is understandable, but not everything is acceptable. I came to understand that that woman just did not have the capacity in that situation to do the right thing by the child. Does it make it acceptable? Absolutely not. Absolutely it doesn't. But it does make it very understandable. If I bring my values of you know, my, my wonderful education and my family and all the resources that I have and expect her to be able to do what I can do, that's, it's totally inappropriate. It's like expecting a two-year-old child to drive a car. And so, so, so what we, what, what's happening here is that I'm learning that everything is understandable, but not everything is acceptable. And so when you do the wrong thing, God goes, I understand why you're doing the wrong thing. 
let me help you change what you believe so that you do the right thing. He's not saying that what you're doing is acceptable, but Jesus paid the price for your unacceptable behaviour and he now wants to help you. This is the Holy Spirit. This is why the Holy Spirit is your counsellor. That's why he's your comforter. That's why he's your helper. He's trying to help you look at what you believe so that your behaviour changes. And so one of the things that we learned in trying to help these families is that we had to try and resource their believing and their capacity so that their behaviour changed. And so we find here, you know, in this piece, Paul, Paul's extraordinary. He's such a great pastor. Uh, You know, he he really wants to help people flourish and grow in the faith. And he's not just a great theologian, he's a great practitioner. And so he says uh, in verse 2, through whom we also have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so, so the truth is that we stand in a place of having complete peace with God. So we stand in that place. However, he goes on and he, uh, he says, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Why, why is, why you, we've got to ask the question, why is he now talking about tribulation when he's saying we've got peace with God? It's like, we've got peace with God, I stand in this grace that I have peace with God, all of my sins are forgiven, God totally wants to help me in everything in my life. And then he introduces this idea of tribulation. There's peace there. Why is he introducing the idea of tribulation? Well, it actually helps if we understand what that word means. And most of us don't. And so let me help you this morning. The word tribulation there means inner turmoil. It doesn't mean external world going down the toilet. It doesn't mean the great tribulation of the Old Testament, of the book of Revelation that, that we are so familiar with. It doesn't mean your external world falling apart or it doesn't mean you've been persecuted for your faith. It means inner turmoil. This word is used on five occasions throughout the New Testament, but our English is just so, uh, so limited. It's like the word love. There are four different Greek words for the word love. Storge, agape, eros and philia. But all those four words are, def- are translated as love, but they all have four different meanings. And so here this word tribulation means inner turmoil. So, I have this grace where I can stand in the peace of God. However, I have inner turmoil which takes me out of the peace of God. That inner turmoil is your doubt, it's your fear. It's where you feel overwhelmed by life. The inner turmoil is when you get angry. It's when you are resentful. It's when you are unforgiving. It's when you are living life in a way that is not Christ-like. little saying that may or may not be helpful, when you squeeze a lemon juice, lemon, you get lemon juice. When you squeeze an orange, you get orange juice. When you squeeze a Christian, you should get Jesus juice. And so when you get squeezed by life, if Jesus juice isn't coming out, then it's just an opportunity for you to figure out what's going on so that the Lord can help me come before the throne of grace in time of need. And so, so life happens and it hits your inner turmoil. Somebody treads on your landmines. Somebody does something that causes you to lose your way as an expression of the love of God towards them. And we all have this inner turmoil. Now I'm 61, I've been following the Lord since 1982. I've been a pastor for you know, the last 30-something years. And I, I still continue to find inner turmoil. I'm starting to bump into more recently 
this, this, this apparently deep-seated thought that I'm not wanted. And it probably goes back to the fact that my mother fell pregnant with me when she'd only been married for two months. And, and, I, and I would imagine that some, and, you know, people who study the brain and emotions are now saying that what is happening to our mother is actually you know, being transferred to us in our womb. And so, so I, I'm, I'm finding at these different points where different things happen and I find myself reacting in a way where Jesus' juice isn't coming out. And, and I'm starting to go, flippin' egg. I always thought this would be resolved by now. So I don't need group therapy today. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to illustrate my point. <laughs> so we've got tribulation. So, so here Paul is he's, he's trying to help us. He's saying, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. And so he's saying... I am thrilled that I stand in the grace of God, that I have peace with God. I am absolutely, it's amazing that I have this peace with God. However, I also exult when the peace leaves me. I also exult when I'm in a different place where I'm not living in this peace that I've received. I exult in my tribulations. Why would, why would somebody say they exult in their tribulations? Because he actually understands what the Holy Spirit's up to. The Holy Spirit's up to setting you free from your inner turmoil but it can only set you free if you own it as your stuff. You see, you became a Christian by being self-aware and taking personal responsibility. You became self-aware that you were separated from God and you took personal responsibility for it and you prayed a prayer that asked Jesus to forgive you and to come into your heart. If that's how you got into the kingdom of God, then surely that's how you'll keep growing in the kingdom of God. So, so when, when, when life squeezes you and Jesus' juice doesn't come out, it's generally because some tribulation on the inside has been hit. And so now it's a matter of being self-aware that this is my stuff, it's not somebody else's stuff. Nobody makes you get angry. You choose to get angry. Some people are really good at creating an environment where that choice is much easier for you to make. I totally accept that. But you still choose to get angry. And so I'm self-aware I'm angry now, and if I'm angry, I'm believing something and I know that I have peace with God and I know that he's not upset with my anger. I know he wants to set me free from whatever it is that's driving my anger. That's why I exult in my tribulation. I go, I've got another opportunity to get free right now. I've actually found something else where the belief system can change and the Holy Spirit's really excited about doing some surgery in here. And so I exult in this tribulation. I exult in this inner turmoil. Because I, I actually, I now can get more, I can become more like Jesus. I can actually learn how to love people better. Yeah. I'm not going to love them on the basis of them having right standing with me anymore on, the, on some sort of set of criteria that I learned growing up. I actually am going to be set free from this so that I can love them even when they stood on my landmines. And so, so this is why, you know, Paul, he's been a pastor here right now. He's, he's been a great pastor. I just wish he was a bit clearer. But anyway, um, I'll help him. And so, <laughs> knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And so, so what, what, what Paul is saying is that what we have discovered is that we need to stay in process with the Holy Spirit to get set free from our belief systems that's causing us to behave in ways that are not godly. We have to persevere. We have to keep walking. We have to understand process. We have to understand that God is a God of process and a God of power. 
and that when life squeezes us and something other than Jesus' juice comes out, it's because it's hit some tribulation on the inside. And so now it's an opportunity for me to come before the throne of grace and say, God, would you help me discover what I'm believing so that I can change my behavior because I actually want to love the world like you love the world. And so, so now, Holy Spirit, I invite you into this space and the Holy Spirit says, great, I'm the best counselor that you'll ever meet. Now, what you've got to understand about great counselors is that they don't actually give you the answer. They just ask you good questions. I'm a really great counsellor. I, I studied social work and I, I'm a flipping good counsellor. And Andrew will attest to that. But it's because I know how to ask him good questions. I ask him a question that faces him up with something. And when you, when you learn how to do this, you watch people duck and weave from the very thing. They know what the answer is, but they don't want to tell you. <laughs> And this is what the Holy Spirit does. Yeah. The Holy Spirit, he just, he'll ask you questions. And, and you'll, he'll want to front you up with something and it's like you try and duck and weave around those questions because it's, it's a little bit painful to actually face it. And so it takes perseverance. It, it takes actually staying in the process. Keep walking. Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. The book of Ezekiel, the dry bones are found in the middle of a valley. The dry bones of the book of Ezekiel is because they stop walking. And when you stop walking, your relationship with God dries up and you get stuck in unforgiveness or you get stuck in bitterness or you get stuck in lying to get your way out of, out of situations that you're afraid of or you get stuck with pornography or you get, you get stuck with stuff. But you've got to keep walking. You've got to keep walking into this place where I exult in my tribulation because somewhere in here there is an answer. It's like the optimist, this little boy who's an optimist and it's Christmas time and his parents say, your presence upstairs in your bedroom and he goes up to his bedroom and he opens the door and it's full of horse shit. And, uh, and he, he's, he's, his optimistic attitude was he dives into it and he says, there's got to be a horse in here if there's so much horse shit. <laughs> and And that's what it's like for us. We're going to be able to dive into our tribulation and go, there's got to be something in here that's going to get fixed up. <laughs> Sorry about the language, it sort of slipped out. <laughs> anyway. So I exult in my inner turmoil. Yeah. I exult in the fact that I'm not coping. I exult because I, I'm going to persevere with the Holy Spirit because I have right standing with God. I stand in this grace that I have peace with God and it's not about my behavior, it's all about my believing. Yeah. And so I'll persevere, I will keep walking in this process. God takes a long time to act suddenly. Yeah. You've just got to get happy with these things about God. He's an agricultural God, he's not a technology God. He just takes his time. Listen, he said in the book of Revelation, behold, I cometh quickly. That was 2,000 years ago, you know what I mean? If that's, if that's quick, it's like, what the... And so we're in this process of learning how not to give people right standing with us on the basis of their behaviour. We're learning how to give them right standing on the basis that we accept them. That everything's understandable. I understand why you would be doing that and, and, and I accept you because I, I understand you're on a journey to get free from it. And I will love you on the journey. I'm not going to abandon you on the journey. I'm going to be there for you and I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to stand with you. And so 
So he says, uh, coming back here, so I, I exalt in my tribulation, uh, uh, brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character. We've got to keep growing. Proven character is that I keep growing. And I, I, I just accept that my Christian life is all about growth. It's just about me getting better, not bitter. It's about me becoming more like Jesus and less like me. It's about the kingdom of self dying and the kingdom of God growing. And so proven character is that I, I'm just, I just keep growing. You know, I, I've you know, been doing this pastoring thing down there in Melbourne for 28 years and, and I look back at when I started and I cringe sometimes you know, at how I used to, to be, but I did the best I could back then. It wasn't like I was not trying to do my best. I'm doing better now because all I've done is learn how to surrender to God and let Him come into my world and change me. And so, so we've got to encourage one another to, to keep growing, to proven character. So we keep walking, we keep growing, we exalt in our tribulations because it's an opportunity to keep walking. We exalt in our tribulation because it's an opportunity to keep growing. And then the next thing uh, that Paul says, proven character, and proven character, hope. And so we keep believing. Hope is all about believing. And so tribulation is an opportunity for me to actually step into a place where I, where I keep walking, and I keep growing, and I keep believing. And I do all of it because Paul uh, says here, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God, which has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. And so all of this, so it's, it's like this circle that is just drawn. I know that I'm loved by God because I've received this grace of peace. But I also have this stuff where I lose my peace and I, and I start doing stuff that I don't want to do. But I exult in that because I know that if I keep walking and I keep growing and I keep believing, it's actually going to find, I'll find my way back into this love that I've received and I'll be able to express it to other people in a better way. And so, so there's this cycle of life. <laughs> Zimba. And uh, anyway, uh, and, and so, so there's this, if I go through this process, what I actually end up having an experience and encounter with is the love of God. If I keep walking, if I keep growing, if I keep believing, at the end of that journey of me allowing the Holy Spirit to set me free, I have an encounter with the love of God. And when I have an encounter with the love of God, that just reinforces to me this grace in which I stand that I have peace with God. And when I have that encounter with the love of God, I now have something really valuable to give away to other people. I'm not giving away to them a love that's based on my decision about whether you have right standing with me or not. But I'm giving away love to you on another basis. And so the steward on the aeroplane was very grateful that I was a Christian because there were some other people that weren't giving him the love that I was giving him. They were giving him a bunch of anger and disappointment and frustration because Virgin wasn't doing what they thought was right in their eyes. But I was able to find this place of even though I was frustrated, it was like, it's nobody's fault, it's just life. And so there's this sense in which he kept coming back to us and telling us what was going on. He wasn't telling anybody else. <laughs> he kept coming back to us and telling us what was going on because it was like, he felt safe with us. Yeah. And that's what we've got to try and do is make people feel safe with us. Yeah. But people won't feel safe with you if you're relating to them on the basis of their right standing, on the basis of their performance. Yeah. They'll always be trying to figure out where are your landmines, where are your buttons, where, what, what, and, and, so, and so in, in all of this, 
this wonderful God that we serve, this extraordinary God that we serve, he's, he's wanting us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And, and so it's, it's learning these, these tensions in the Christian life of I have peace with God and I stand in this grace, but when tribulation comes, I know how to handle it so that I have an experience of the love of God. And in that experience of the love of God, I now have something that is the most powerful thing in the world to give away because love never fails. And so I have it to give away to my wife, to Lynn. I have it to give away to my children, to my sons and daughter-in-law, to my grandchildren, to my staff, to the people I live beside, to the people I drive on the road with. I'm a person who's at peace. I'm a person who's relaxed. I'm a person who is actually able to be who Jesus is, the Prince of Peace. Because I've learned how to negotiate the way that God works with us. And, and there are all these life lessons in the, in the book of Romans here. In the, the other four pieces, I can teach you life lessons out of that as well, but one for today is enough. So, let's all stand. And uh, if I can have the worship team to come back, thank you. All right, um, so if you can just close your eyes uh, just to sort of get you centred, give you an opportunity to centre rather than being distracted by everything that's around us. I would imagine that the majority of this room, if not everybody in this room, has got some inner turmoil that they're wrestling with right now. It might be disappointment, it might be discouragement, it might be resentment, it might be unforgiveness, it might be low self-esteem, it might be depression, it might be fear, it might be doubt, it might be wrestling with a medical diagnosis that's thrown a curveball into your world, it might be financial pressure that's causing you to be anxious, to be worried. So I just want you to be courageous enough to just identify that in your own heart. We're, we're just, one, just, just one space of inner turmoil. And I want you to think about that inner turmoil this morning in the context of what you've heard me say. That Paul here says to exalt in our inner turmoil because at the end of the process is an encounter with the love of God. If you keep walking with him and allow the Holy Spirit to counsel you, if you allow others to walk with you, because the Holy Spirit will counsel you through others at different times, there is an experience of the love of God waiting for you, an experience of his kindness, an experience of his gentleness. And so you might have decided to stop walking in the process. You might have decided it's all got too tough. I get that, I understand that, you know, life sucks and it does get overwhelming at times. I accept that. I just want to encourage you this morning to look at your perseverance. Are, are, you, are you still walking? Should you make a decision this morning to, to go, God, I, I invite you back into this space. 
I know at times it's really hard to forgive people that have hurt you badly. It's actually easier to be bitter than it is to be forgiving. I, I, I do understand that when you don't have enough money to pay the bills, it's, it's actually easier to be anxious because it feels that you're being responsible if you're worrying. I, I really do think that, you know, I, I may not have walked in your shoes, but I think I can understand what you're wrestling with. And all I'm wanting to say to you today is that that, that tribulation, if you're not walking into your freedom, you're staying in a prison. And I want you to be set free. And so this morning, I, I just want to ask the Holy Spirit as we're coming to a close to empower your perseverance, to encourage you in your keep walking. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to help you have a desire to keep growing, not to be stuck. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to keep believing. Because I know that when you keep walking and you keep growing and you keep believing, you will have an encounter with the love of God. And when you have an encounter with the love of God, you stop accepting people, giving them right standing on the basis of performance. You have a supernatural ability to love them like God loves them. So why don't you just lift that thing that you're thinking about before the Lord right now and I'm just going to pray for you. So Holy Spirit, as we, Lord, just bring this area of inner turmoil to you today, I'm praying for each person, Lord. I'm asking Holy Spirit by and through the name of Jesus that you would empower all of us, Lord, to keep walking be motivated to keep growing and to stay in a place that we keep believing. I'm asking, Lord, that you would accelerate the process for people in this room today. I'm asking, Lord, that you help people pick up what they might have put down. I'm asking, Lord, that you'd help people to dust off what they might have let life fallow. I'm asking, Lord, that you would Help them, give them wisdom, Holy Spirit, to know how to move forward in this area in their life. But Lord, our goal would to be better lovers. Our goal is that people wouldn't feel that they have right standing with us because of their performance, but they have right standing with us because the love of God has been shed abroad to them through us. And so, Lord, I thank you that there are encounters with your love waiting for each of us on our own journeys. There are encounters with your kindness and your gentleness that will overwhelm us. So Lord, I bless each journey today in Jesus' name. I release favour and acceleration over each journey that's here today, Lord. And I ask your Holy Spirit, would you continue to fan the flame of a desire to love well, to love like Jesus loves, to love like the Father and like you, Holy Spirit, love because we really do want the whole world to know the wonder of Jesus Christ.